you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, whether in app form, whether in paper form, come and join me in Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke 7, verse 36 to 50. It is the story of a sinful woman forgiven. I'm going to read it out for us, and then we'll welcome Pat to come and unpack it for us. Luke 7, 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, great to be with you here again this morning, church. Uh, My name is Pat. Uh, Nick called me Patrick before. I thought I was being told off. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. I've really enjoyed this Compel series uh, because it's helped me to think a bit more missionally about my life. I really hope it's helped you think a bit more missionally about your life as well. Um, I really have also enjoyed kind of talking through uh, this series in gospel communities. It's been a really cool place to kind of unpack a bit of what we've been hearing um, on Sundays. And so if you're not in a gospel community, I would love to change your status from single or it's complicated to flourishing. Uh, Let me help you uh, start flourishing in a community of life, love and maturity. Uh, It's really where, uh, what a a better place to to think about and talk about mission than people who you're meeting up with every single week, having a meal with and reading the Bible together. But as Nick mentioned, this week we are landing the plane on our Compel series and we're going to be looking at the plausibility of the Christian message, the plausibility of the Christian message. But before I do, let me pray. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the mission that you have given us uh, to take your good news, to take your gospel to all the world. And we thank you for the opportunity that you would use people like us when you could do it other ways. Father, I pray that you now speak through your word 
And may we unpack it clearly. May we see Jesus for the beauty that he is in the pages. And may you speak powerfully through me now. Amen. Now, I'm not sure about what the awkwardest party you've ever been to is, but I've been to a lot of awkward parties. But the most awkward party I've ever heard about comes from an old housemate of mine. It's one of my favourite stories of all time. I don't know if you've ever heard of, hosted or been to a demolition party, but a demolition party is basically when you're having a renovation or doing some work on your house, maybe you're getting a new kitchen, maybe you're getting a new bathroom, maybe you're doing a full knockdown rebuild, you invite your mates over in the, under the guise of a party, but really you're going for free labour. And they bring, their, they bring their hammers, they bring their crowbars, they bring their screwdrivers, and you just go to town and you just demolish the person's house. Now, as a former carpenter, I can't stress enough how much I don't want you to host these parties. They are so dangerous uh, because you've got absolute amateurs doing absolute professional work and there's electricity and there's a whole bunch of stuff that can go wrong. So please take it from me. This is like my OHS hat. Don't host these parties. But I went through a period of life where a lot of my mates were hosting these parties and they kind of became known for uh, how flamboyant of an entrance you could have coming into these parties. Because especially if it was going to be a, a knockdown rebuild, you could come through the window or you could do a whole bunch of different stuff. And I was at one where we were standing in the lounge room and all of a sudden two guys dropped through the ceiling. And they were like, we're here. And it was, it was this amazing, amazing moment. And I went to another one where two guys dropped through the ceiling of the laundry when they were aiming for the lounge room. And so no one heard there, we're here. And it was a massive fail. So you can see why I think they're a terrible idea. But one of the best entrances to one of these parties I ever heard of uh, was from a mate of my housemate. And he was walking in, he got to the party, and they were doing a knockdown rebuild, and they said, go as hard as you want, come through the window, come through the roof, do something cool. So he got to the house, and there were these two pillars on the outside. And so he had his sledgehammer, and he took a sledgehammer to one pillar. He took a sledgehammer to another pillar, and he went straight through the front door, and he said, I'm here. And he had the wrong house. And three doors up, he was in someone's living room. And there at the table was a family with kids screaming because a man has just entered their house with a sledgehammer. Could you imagine how terrifying that would be and how sheepish he was? Needless to say, that was a very unwelcome guest. And I'm telling you that story because I love that story. But also... Today, we are looking at the story of an extremely unwelcome guest. We are looking at the story of an upside-down dinner party. A dinner party that is totally interrupted by an unwelcome guest. A dinner party where the host totally fails at their job. The gatecrasher becomes the guest of honour, and the guest of honour becomes the host. So let's have a look at a meal with Jesus. Please turn to the passage with me as we read from Luke 736 again. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair, and kissed his head, oh sorry, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now this passage is a great passage to look at when you're thinking about Jesus and telling people about him because I think that this passage encapsulates so much of what he's on about 
and the love, uh, what his love leads to in someone's life. But before we unpack the text, please imagine with me, if you will, you're at a dinner party. It's a fancy dinner party. The host is a respectable church leader. He's a bit of a local politician. He's a mover and shaker. He can make things happen. He's a big deal. And you're really excited to be at this party because tonight he's got a visiting speaker like he often does. And you're excited because there's a bit of noise about this guy. He's causing a stir and you're keen to see him in person. Some people are really wary of him. He's ruffling some feathers. He's got dangerous ideas. But you're keen to hear what he has to say and you're keen to see how he acts in real life. You've got an open mind. It's a fancy house. The who's who are in attendance. And as always, there are some gate crashers who are kind of just fitting in with the crowd, Great Gatsby style. But the party has a bit of an open door policy so anybody can come in and see what's going on. But then the doorbell rings and a woman walks in. And at this point, you look at the host's face and it's just white with embarrassment. Because this woman stumbles in as if she started the night early somewhere else. She's wearing tight, cheap, revealing clothing. Everybody else is in black tie, cocktail attire. She looks like the kind of person that makes her money standing on a street corner. And you can't look away when she just makes a beeline straight for the guest of honour. She grabs him passionately. She embraces him with a hug that makes everybody feel unbelievably uncomfortable. And she says out loud to the guest of honour, I'll always be yours. She's kissing and massaging him. At this stage, she's bawling her eyes out while she's holding him. Makeup is running down her face. You and everyone in the room can't stop looking and you just feel so sorry for the host. He's got this woman hanging off him all up in his space. How embarrassing. But instead of pushing her off, or trying to wiggle free, he reaches up, he puts his arms around her, and he says something like, and you are mine. Surely this is a mistake, you and everybody else think of the party. Surely this guest of honour could use a little bit more discernment, recognise the message that he might be sending her and the other people at the party. See, this is the way that Tim Chester, a commentator on this passage, describes this dinner. And the reason for telling it like that is because I want you to feel the awkwardness that hangs in this text that we can totally miss. This is a really radical dinner party. Here we find ourselves with Jesus at yet another meal. It's been said that throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus loved meals, and there was never a dull moment with Jesus at a meal. And the meal described is a Greco-Roman style symposium, one where it's a meal followed by a discussion. And the diners, they would recline at three sides of a table with their head in the middle and their feet at the back. They would be on couches or on the floor. And everybody would serve food from the fourth side of the table and they could keep on eating bread and drinking wine and eating whatever meal was provided and then they would discuss And sometimes these houses would have a big open public section where members of the public could come and see and maybe give input, but mostly do business with those who were reclining at the table. It was a real community affair. And here we see that this woman hears that Jesus is at the meal, and she comes not just to see Jesus or hear Jesus, but she comes to meet Jesus. 
And the cultural faux pas that the woman does at this moment are just huge. It's worth noting that the way that she approaches him is with a shocking, shocking amount of intimacy. In that culture, letting down your hair is the modern-day equivalent of taking off your top. She anoints him with oil like she would a lover. She keeps on touching his feet like she might a client. And all of this publicly at the house where Jesus is the guest of honour. And this wasn't just any house like we see in the text. This is the house of Simon the Pharisee. And the Pharisees, they guarded their purity from sinners extremely closely. They wouldn't have allowed anyone to come absolutely near them at all at the table. They saw Rome as the occupiers of their holy land. They saw Romans uh, outsiders as dirty. They kept everyone at arm's length lest they become unclean. And here's Jesus, their guest of honour, at the table, dining with them as a guest, and he lets this woman approach him. Now, the text doesn't explicitly mention that she's a prostitute, you'll notice. But that's what's widely believed, that that is what Luke is suggesting in verse 37 when he says she was known in the city as a sinner. See, to the religious elite, she is the fastest way to become dirty, a person to be avoided at all costs. But we see here Jesus welcomes her. He could have said, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing, but that's really not appropriate behaviour. But instead, he does absolutely nothing. A New Testament scholar, John Nolan, puts it, the passivity in the face of this behaviour is extremely eloquent. He is saying so much with what he doesn't do. See, prostitution, if it was her business, is a commercial parody of hospitality. She displays the only form of hospitality that she might know how to display. But Jesus recognises it as the real thing. You see, he doesn't see what we see. He reinterprets it as a loving act rather than an erotic act. He sees the heart behind every action, the good intention, even when it's displayed in such inappropriate ways. Tim Costello, a local Melbourne boy, speaks about how he's looking at this story with a group of drug addicts and prostitutes here in this city. And one of the prostitutes said, Jesus must have been a really great bloke because she could imagine what it was like to be this woman. She thought of the formal evenings in the posh suburbs of Melbourne that we're standing in right now. She thought about party crashing one of those parties, of how she would be treated she could understand what it cost this woman to anoint the feet of Jesus on this night. She could imagine the repulsion that would have been directed towards her by other guests. She could imagine the mutterings and the glares. She could understand how much this woman must have loved Jesus to go there. Let's read on in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, and he answered, say a teacher. Jesus said, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom had cancelled the larger debt. 
And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You see, Simon the Pharisee doubts Jesus' power. He doubts Jesus as a prophet. But then immediately, Jesus proves that he is a prophet by answering the thought that is in the head of the Pharisee. He rebukes the thought that is in Simon's head. And he answers it by going on to small this, tell this small parable of the moneylender, using it to highlight that the woman gets what Simon the host doesn't, that she sees Jesus as Lord, someone to have faith in, someone to be treated as a guest of honour. Jesus goes on to describe the incredible acts that the woman has done in anointing him, how she has hosted him, and again, he mercifully interprets the good gift that she is trying to offer in the only way that she knows how. It's not only a story of Jesus welcoming sinners. This is the story of a sinner welcoming Jesus. You see, this woman loved and had faith in Jesus because Jesus offered life and redemption to this woman. Her love flows from gratitude and gratitude comes from her sense of need, the need that she can't do this on her own. See, Jesus requires us to recognise our depravity, to recognise our brokenness and not try to deal with it on our own. See, not only does he rightly interpret the genuine love that the woman shows, but he also rightly interprets the lack of love and honour shown by the apparent host. He calls out the disrespect that the Pharisee had shown him as, 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 as his own dinner. He had given him nothing and he had judged those who he was interacting with. So here we have two responses to Jesus. The first response is that of the Pharisee, who sees Jesus as merely a friend of sinners. The second response is that of the woman, who sees Jesus as the Lord who wipes away her debt. And you might be thinking to yourself, why are we looking at this passage when it comes to plausibility? Why are we looking at this passage when it comes to the plausibility of the Christian message? I want to say that because this is the Christian message. This is the Christian message. And for many, it is utterly implausible. It's implausible that God so loved us that he would send his son that we might have life to the full. It's implausible that we are sinners who can throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus because in his beauty... He clears all of our wrongs and makes us the guest of honour. It is absolutely comprehensible that we often live as a Pharisee and we don't see our mess, we don't see our sin, and it makes us hold people at arm's length, scared that we're going to get their dirt on us. We judge those who we shouldn't judge, we do what we shouldn't do, we dress up and try to impress God. But he didn't come for us like that. He come for us as we are. But as soon as you try to start fixing yourself, you are totally missing the point. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when meeting with people one-to-one, uh, -one, he would ask them, so, are you still a Christian? And if they said, I'm trying, he would know that they didn't comprehend the gospel. They didn't comprehend the Christian message. They had made the same mistake as the Pharisee. And they could absolutely learn something from the woman who's at this party. If this is your first time in church, 
I hope you're not freaking out too much. Uh, maybe it's your first time in church in a long time ever. I hope that you can see the clarity of who Jesus is, is right here. He's a friend to you. He's a welcoming saviour to you. And he wants to know you. Not your Sunday best version of yourself. He wants to know you. And if you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for your whole life, I hope you can see Jesus clearly right here. He's a friend of you. He is a saviour for you who wants to know you, not the Sunday best version of you. See, when we're on mission for Jesus, we need to remember this message. It's insane. It is beautiful. It's full of grace. And sometimes a penny drops for people right away. Sometimes it takes a lifetime for people to comprehend it. And the crazy thing is that comprehension of this message, it doesn't rely on age or stage. It doesn't rely on intellect. It entirely relies on the Spirit of God allowing your eyes to see the beauty of it. See, if you're not trusting in Jesus yet, but you think you might like to explore a bit more about this guy, please come chat to myself, come chat with Nick, come chat with the person who brought you to the service. Keep on coming, check us out. Jesus is truly, truly beautiful. And it would be at least worth exploring his life. And often when we start to talk with our friends and our family about Jesus, there's a bunch of problems, right? We get nervous. We don't know what to say. We don't know who to talk to. We don't know when to talk to them. But the biggest problem that we face is that there is a huge problem of plausibility plausibility between our friends and the Christian message. So let's turn our attention to the plausibility problem. Now, Sam Chan, he describes the plausibility problem like this. Imagine that I told you last night I woke up and aliens were in my yard. They took me up in their spaceship to Jupiter. We went, we had a game of badminton, we had some great muffins, we flew around the galaxy and then we came back and I went to bed. You would say, Pat, you're insane. That didn't happen. I'd say, yes, you're right. Uh, But then imagine if three or four more people who you loved and respected said, oh no, I was there too. Like those muffins were delicious. I saw Pat, we, we versed each other in badminton. That story would all of a sudden go from completely unbelievable to something I should probably check out and explore. See, we're living in a post, post Christian world. It used to be that our friends and family had at least some knowledge of the Christian faith from school, or maybe they knew multiple Christians. But now you might be the only Christian in your friends or family members' life. And when you tell your friends about Jesus, it might be like they're hearing the story of the alien. Because you're trying to tell them that there's this guy from the Middle East, Iraq. 2,000 years ago, he hung on a Roman cross to suffer the sins that they committed yesterday, today, and they're going to commit tomorrow. But three days later, he rose from the dead for the redemption of their sins, proving that death had been defeated. In him exists eternal life and existence to the full. That sounds as implausible to 90% of people than the alien story. We have a massive, massive plausibility problem. And my experience of becoming a Christian was that the more Christians I met, the more Christians I saw it playing out in a real way in their lives, it went from being extremely confusing to unbelievably compelling. Because I used to have that one goody-two-shoes friend, that one goody-two-shoes Christian friend. I used to think it was like intellectually not that great. But then I realised 
that more books have been written on Jesus, that people really wrestled with the facts of Jesus, that it's actually a historic account. And the more and more Christian people I met, the more and more this message became plausible to me. Now, it didn't happen like that. It happened over a lifetime of actually reflecting on my Christian friends. You see, when we're on mission, we are witnessing with our words and our actions to the plausibility of the Christian faith. And there's so much that we can do. There's so much that I could talk about that we could train on. But I want to try to simplify it to three practical steps that I think that we can do as a community. And these three practical steps are absolutely not original ideas. They're gleaned from lots of different evangelistic authors that I like. And I'm going to say them so I don't plagiarise them. They're Sam Chan, Tim Keller, Rebecca McLaughlin, John Dixon and Tim Chester. I've taken the best of what I think will work for our community and I've just smooshed them together so we can try to do this over the next few weeks, months and years. But I also want to note that it, doesn't, it isn't limited to this, but I reckon this is going to be good for us. So let's get into our three evangelistic application points. First one, merge your circles. This idea is from Sam Chan again. Merge your circles. The idea is that you make friends with your non-Christian friends' friends. And you also introduce your Christian friends to your non-Christian friends. The best and easiest thing we can ever do is to hang out with people. It's pretty hard to share Jesus with people if you never hang out with people. See, you don't do a mission alone. We have amazing connections. We have amazing friendships here in this room, in your gospel communities. So when you're watching footy, when you're going on a park run, when you're having a board games night, when you're having a dinner, invite friends and just be friends. And that leads us to, oh no, sorry. It's kind of like the matchmaking thing. I don't know when you were single, if you used to kind of go to a dinner party and you'd be like, oh yeah, this is nice. You get invited over by a friend and there's one couple and there's another couple, there's another couple and there's the single person. And you're like, oh no, this is happening again. And, and now, these days, it happens to me when, when people think, oh, Pat's going to have a really great bromance with this guy. I need, just need to get him in the room and they're going to talk about fishing the whole time. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Another guy who likes fishing. And it always works. But there is, a, <laughs> there is no shame at all in introducing your friends to your other friends. I've done it with like 90% of the people in this room. I really like uh, introducing friends to one another because it helps to build a great community. Why not try to build that community with Christians and non-Christians alike. There is absolutely no shame in doing it. Because this also broadens the circle of plausibility in the lives of your friends who don't yet know Jesus. Because all people seem to hate Christians until they meet Christians. One of the things that I like to ask when people are really teeing off on Christians is like, hey, just out of, out of the blue, do you, do you like know any? And they're like, and they're like oh, yeah, of course. I was like, who? Oh, my, my grandmother. I know my grandma. She's a Christian and well, she's amazing. Like she, she doesn't stop giving to the Red Cross and she's always asking me how it goes. She's really generous with her time. But Christians suck. And I go, oh, well, do you know any others? Well, yeah. Well, there's this weird girl at school and I think she's like over in Africa saving the world at the moment. Like she's, she's actually pretty amazing. She does this cool stuff. But Christians suck. I say, well, what about others? And they say, oh, I work with this guy. And he's actually always the one who's starting Are You OK Day. He's always, you know, the first one to buy milk, the last one to leave and turn the lights out. He's actually a really amazing guy. But Tony Abbott sucks, you know, and we get shoehorned into these, uh, these parodies of Christian people. So that's the first thing. 
Merge your circles because people need to know Christians to find it plausible. Secondly, be a great friend. This idea is from Rebecca McLaughlin and Tim Keller. Be a great friend. And I want to stress that I don't want anybody to ever see any friends as projects, right? We are called to love and serve those around us, and that is merely what you're doing. You're loving and serving people around you. As God's children, I think you have the ability to be the best, best friends that anybody can ever have. So be a great, great friend. Listen well. Ask good questions. Genuinely love people in their wins and in their losses. Share your hardships with them. Let people into your mess. Because there is absolutely nothing worse than when people think that you have it all together. People need to know how much of a basket case you really are. But let your witness show how you deal with that. Tell them about how Jesus helps you in your mess. And if appropriate, offer to pray for people. I've never ever had that offer turned down. Offer to pray with people. Part of being a good friend is telling, uh, is going to their stuff, making sure you're doing stuff regularly together. Our city is an incredibly lonely city. So it's a simple point of application. Invite your friends, your neighbours, your workmates, your extended family to be a part of your life and the life of your family. If you're going to want them to do Alpha, if you're going to want them to do Introducing Jesus, if you're going to want them to come to church, invest in relationship capital. Be a great friend and genuinely be a great friend. So merge your circles, be a great friend, and lastly, use your meals for mission. Food connects us and it connects us with the people we live with. It deepens relationships. It turns strangers into friends. And when you have people over, they're either already a friend or they're well and truly on their way to becoming one. Meals speed up that process. And you have 21 meals a week. 21 meals a week. Tim Chester helpfully highlights that Jesus, when he was here on earth, he didn't establish ministries He'd sorry, run projects, establish ministries, create programs or put on events. He ate meals. If you routinely share your meals and have a passion for Jesus, then you're going to be doing mission. It's not the meals that save people. People are saved for the gospel message. But meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. One of the most compelling missional statements I think you can ever say is, do you want to come for dinner? Do you want to come for dinner? It's a lost art, but it's such a powerful statement. We just don't do dinner with people anymore. And when they arrive, don't make the meal the centre. Rather, make your guests the centre. See, too often we let this kind of Instagram culture sneak into our houses and the meal can actually become unwelcoming. And I'm not saying don't cook amazing meals, pull out the fine cutlery, do amazing meals, but I suggest that make them authentic meals. It is so helpful for people to see the mess of your family. That can go such a long way. So there are three missional tips for helping us tackle the plausibility problem. Merge your circles, be a great friend, and use your meals for mission. Church, to be a compelling people, we need to point to the compelling Christ. We need to have the right posture, as Nick said, of humility, dependence, and urgency. We need to work on living persuasive lives, have the answers to people's questions and compel people with the good news of Christ, inviting them to be a part of our lives so they see see real faith in Jesus lived out. 
that it might become plausible. Our whole lives are witnessing to something, whether we like it or not. What's yours witnessing to? But I want to circle back to one of the points that Nick's made at the start of the series when he was talking about the urgency um, of the Christian mission. We need to get going. We really need to get going. To paraphrase the words of Charles Spurgeon, if our friends are heading to hell, let them leap over our bodies and our efforts to get there. Let that place be full of people who saw and heard our best efforts to tell them of the work of God. Let those people get there marked by our prayers every single step of the way. Christ is so compelling and he really does save people. Your friends and your family are moments away from heaven or hell. As the band comes up, I just want to share one last story. I have a mate who I've known since I was three. Uh, We lived in the same town until we were 18. I've been concussed four times. He was there for three of them. And then when we were 18, we went our separate ways. He ended up in Queensland and I ended up in Victoria. When I became a Christian, Joe, who was my friend, he was really weirded out. Uh, But we kept the friendship solid. We were both groomsmen at each other's wedding. We ended up seeing each other a couple of times a year. year. We have nothing but love for one another. And whenever the question came up, which one of your friends should or could you be praying for, he was always in the top three. But he is the soul in my life. He is so against Christianity so far away from the faith. And as we got older, I had lots of opportunities to share, especially when I was becoming a pastor. We had some decent chats, but I never felt like it got anywhere. I felt like I was either too harsh or not clear enough. And the older we got, the more antagonistic he got. And in this this July, I got a random call from him and he had just gone through some pretty tough times. And he said, I'd love to catch up and I'd love to hear a bit more about your faith. Uh, I've just met a bunch of Christian guys, and I just want to know a bit more what they're all on about. And he's in Queensland, so we organised a Zoom, uh, and we talked. And I was so, so nervous. I've never been more nervous for a Zoom. But we Zoomed, and we were really interrupted by our kids. And the conversation didn't go anywhere meaningful. I blundered through some stuff. We finished, and that was that. It was pretty bad. And I was like, oh. But we organised a time for the next week. Same time, we organised for the kids to be in different houses. And uh, next week it got real. Next week we talked about John chapter 3, what it was like to be reborn. And then I shared the parable of the prodigal son from Luke. And that night, the 13th of July... Joe surrendered his life. It was 12 years of witness. Countless people speaking into his life. Countless people praying for his soul. And Jesus just said, he's mine. Joe and that woman who washed Jesus' feet are going to be in eternity together. Churches, this stuff is real. 
This stuff changes people's lives. It inverts kingdoms. It saves people from an eternity against God. Never, ever give up on that friend who you're getting nowhere with. Never give up on that child who you're so concerned for. Never cease paying for that family member that you so desperately want to see Jesus. Never, ever give up trying to compel people for Jesus. We are about to head into a time of communion. Um, Communion is a meal with Jesus. It's for sufferers and sinners. If you want to call people, if you want to call Jesus Lord, then I really invite you to the table. We saw a beautiful picture at the start of a Jesus who sat at a meal and forgave a woman. I invite you to come and sit at the table of Jesus again. Uh, As the hosts pass around the elements, we would really love um, for you to stand and sing with the band and hold on to them. And then Nick is going to lead us in the second half of communion. But before we do that, let me pray. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, your gospel is so true, it is so real, it is so powerful. Have us to never forget uh, the life-changing good news that Jesus offers. Father, I pray that as we close the book on our Compel series, that we might feel more encouraged to talk to our friends, our neighbours, our family about Jesus. I praise you again for the life of Joe. I praise you that he now knows and loves you, that he calls you Lord, that he and I know each other better than we ever have. And I pray for everybody in this room right now, those people that are on their hearts, save them. Use us to compel them towards Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.